Just a few minutes. Uh, we'll be in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. I almost said chapter 10. 2 Peter, chapter 3. And uh, we will start with verse uh, 10. And we will be looking at verses 10 through 13. If you would like to go ahead and find your way there this morning. 2 Peter, um, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. We do have that uh, um, up on our website. It's in the Bible app. Um, uh, that sort of thing. If you're on our website, you can take notes there. Um, but anyway, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 is what we will be looking at. We're, uh, we're all from, from Illinois, or we at least live in Illinois right now. So uh, we might be, if you like to look at history and, and uh, those sorts of things, you might be familiar with the Great Chicago Fire um, in 1871. Chicago uh, uh, had a fire and it started when a woman was milking her cow and there was a little lamp of oil and a little flickering flame and the cow kicked over the lamp and the flame kindled a wisp of hay and another wisp until all the day or all the hay in the stable was on fire and the next building was on fire and then the next building was on fire and the next building was on fire. The fire spread over the river to the main part of Chicago and swept on until within a territory of one mile wide and three miles long, only two buildings were left standing. Little flame from the lamp had laid Chicago into ashes. Today, in our text, we will see a fire that doesn't burn a city but a fire that literally burns the entire world. I've always found it interesting how Christians are fascinated with biblical prophecy. Uh, when, I was a, when I was a student pastor, it seemed that was what teens most were interested in when we had our lessons. They always wanted to study the book of Revelation. Even non-Christians uh, obsess over the book of Revelation or over end times prophecy and what's going to happen and they wonder if it's all really true and this is part of the reason why whether you agree with them or not Tim LaHaye's Left Behind books uh, were bestsellers. People are drawn to prophecy. They're like moths being drawn to the flame because it's mysterious and it's unknown and, and we don't really know what's going to happen and for the non-Christian there just seems to be something cool about uh, the end times and what's going to happen. But they fail to realize that biblical prophecy warns sinners to repent and flee from God's coming wrath. As we've noticed, uh, as we've been studying uh, the book of 2 Peter um, over the last few weeks, uh, Peter's writing here to counter the false teachers and what they were teaching. They were denying that Jesus would return to judge the world. And the, the reason, as we've said, that they were denying this was because they wanted to pursue their greedy and sensual lifestyle and didn't really want to have to answer for it. And these false teachers were drawing uh, the naive, professing Christians away from the, uh, the true gospel with their message of freedom, which was really leading people into slavery of sin. And Peter has explained why it is that the Lord's return seemed to be delayed because he has a different perspective of time and he is patiently waiting for all to come to repentance. 
Peter will now turn to the theme that he mentioned in verse 7. That day of judgment is coming. This is no different from any other biblical prophecy. It's not given so that um, our curiosity is satisfied, but to motivate us towards godly living. That's what biblical prophecy should do. It should motivate you and I as followers of Christ towards godly living. The message that Peter gives is a relatively uh, simple message. Since Christ will return in judgment and everything will be destroyed by fire, then we must live in holiness in light of that coming day. And so with that said, I would ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that as it goes forth this morning, that it would speak to our hearts and our lives. The Lord, we would truly understand that it all will burn one day. And Lord, if we are living for the things of this earth, reveal that in our heart this morning. Pray that you'd speak for your saints are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Let me tell you what Peter is not doing. He's not giving us a detailed chronological account of the end times. That's not what Peter is doing. So then... Uh, so then we can sit and draw up all these cool little prophecy charts and, and all these little maps and say, well, see, this is how everything's going to play out. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter is driving home one point. This world and everything in this world and all this stuff that so many people hold so dear to their heart is all going to burn. God is going to recreate a new heaven. And a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so, so we must make a basic choice. Do we want to live for the things of this world that will meet a certain destruction? Or do we want to live so that we will have an inheritance in the new heavens and new earth? And as we work through this text, I will explain a few things concerning prophecy. But we're not going to get distracted from from the message that Christ is coming in judgment and this world will burn. Therefore, are we living in holiness in light of that day? First thing I want us to see this morning is in that day, there will be disastrous consequences. In that day, there will be disastrous consequences. In verse 9, Peter explained that one reason for the delay of the Lord's coming is that he is patiently allowing sinners to repent of their sin. However, it would be a tremendous mistake to think that he is not coming because his return is delayed. Six times in these 
three verses, we see not what might happen, but what will happen. In verse 10, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come. In the original Greek, verse 10 starts with, uh, starts with will come. That's how the verse starts, to emphasize the certainty of the Lord's coming. There is no doubt about it. The Lord is coming. This whole theme of the day of the Lord is familiar um, from Old Testament prophets. Sometimes it, it points to a, uh, what's called a near historical judgment. Other times it looks ahead to a final great day of judgment. In both of these cases, it always uses this frightening language of destruction. For example, Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners from it. This is the same theme in the New Testament. It is my understanding that the day of the Lord in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, is synonymous with the more unusual phrase, the day of God, in verse 12. I can remember when I first became a student pastor, and uh, one of the comments uh, that was made when I went uh, to this church in, in view of a call was, we do not need a fire and brimstone preacher. And uh, I thought, well, I didn't realize I was a fire and brimstone preacher, but apparently I was. I did. It was news to me. But there are people that just don't like that imagery, especially when it comes to God's judgment. They prefer a kinder and gentler God, you know? One, one that's, he's nice to sinners. Paul talks about the riches of his kindness and, and tolerance and patience. And then he adds, the kindness of God leads you to repentance in Romans 2.4. However, if we keep on reading in verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impotent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So yes, we should proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of God's kindness if a person repents. But we also must warn that there is a day coming where God's frightening judgment is coming for those who do not repent. There are four things I want us to see in verse 10. First of all, Christ's return is a certainty. Christ's return is a certainty. The day of the Lord will come. Not might come, not perhaps will come, not probably will come, but the day of the Lord will come. There is no doubt about it. It is an absolute certainty. It will happen personally the day that we die. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 tells us that. It is appointed. There is no, no escaping your appointment. It's not like, you know, when you, when you put an appointment in your book and then you can forget about it or miss it. It doesn't work that way. We all have an appointment with death, and no one will escape it. Except Enoch and Elijah. They, they got to miss those appointments because God called them straight into heaven. There is no reincarnation where we get another chance to improve ourselves. There is no purgatory where if enough of your relatives pray for you and light enough candles and give enough money to the church, then you'll eventually be able to get into heaven. Rather, you have an appointment with death. Everybody has an appointment with death. An appointment to die and then face God's judgment. 
I just have to know, are you ready for that appointment? There is also coming of the, the coming of the day of the Lord when Christ returns. At this point, there's not going to be a second chance either. Although this idea may not be appealing to the so-called intellectuals of our day, it is still the truth that Paul proclaimed to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 when he said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, God has commanded all people, not some people, all people everywhere to repent because Jesus Christ is going to come back and judge this world one day. If God has fixed that day, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. It's not might going to happen. It will happen. Paul makes it clear that he will come back and judge the world. So not only is it certain, but I also want us to know that Christ's return is sudden. Christ's return is certain. Christ's return is sudden. Peter says that this day will come like a thief. He's repeating the words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 43, when he said, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. He's coming. It's like a thief. I don't know of any thief that calls you up and announces, hey, I'm going to come over and break into your house about 3 o'clock today. Just want you to be aware of that. That's not the way it works, right? They, they come when you're not expecting it, when you're not home, and they do the damage that they're going to do. Just as in the days prior to the, to the flood, the people around Noah are going on about their life, right? That they're living their life as, as if nothing is wrong, they, they have no thought of the impending judgment and destruction that's coming their way. It's going to be the same way when Jesus returns. People have heard that Jesus will come in judgment. They, they've heard it. People have proclaimed it. Perhaps they've seen a movie about it. Perhaps they've read uh, the Left Behind books or something. But they know it's supposed to happen. But they procrastinate. and They do nothing to get ready for his return. It is like a, when you prepare a will, right? For one reason or another, people just do not want to prepare a will. They don't want to do it. Um, I've been after, after uh, my mom and, and stepdad. Uh, hey, you guys need to get a will. It, people just don't want to do it for whatever reason. Maybe it's because they got to talk about death. I have no idea. They don't want to prepare a will. They act like, well, we have all kinds of time until time runs out. The Bible's message is clear. Do not procrastinate about getting right with God. Dying without Christ will have far more disastrous effects than dying without a will. Do not let that day surprise you like a thief in the night. Thirdly, there is no escape for, the, for those outside of Christ. There is no escape for those outside of Christ. Christ's return is certain. It is sudden. And there is no escaping it. I don't know if you really pay attention to whether or not uh, a bad weather is coming, whether it be a, a hurricane or a severe snowstorm, as we heard Steve so eloquently announce to us. Uh, 
but, but people usually have time to prepare for those, those kinds of weather events, right? For hurricanes, people will board up their houses and they will grab some belongings and, and they'll evacuate when, when a severe hurricane's coming. For snowstorms, everybody goes to the store and they buy all the bread and all the milk that they can buy and there's none left in the store because you know that you're going to be trapped inside your house for weeks on end, which, which in my lifetime has never happened. But that's what we do. For pandemics, everyone goes and buys toilet paper for some reason. I still have not yet figured that one out, but that's what, oh, we got to get toilet paper, folks. I, that, I, one day I might figure out what's going on there. But let me ask you this, if a scientist warned us that a giant meteor was heading our way and it would disintegrate the entire planet Earth, where would you go? Nowhere. In verse 10, Peter warns that Christ is coming. The heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be exposed or burnt up. The idea uh, of the ESV using the word exposed is that no one can hide their sin from God. It, everything will be exposed. No one, no matter who they are, how clever they are, will be able to get away with anything. Whether the works are burnt up or exposed, what is clear is that there won't be any place to go to escape this judgment. If you could get in a rocket and head to outer space or even go to another planet, it would do you absolutely no good. Because it's not just the earth, but also the heavens that will be destroyed by this huge judgment of fire. Only those who are in Christ will be saved. If 2 Peter were the only book that we had of the Bible, then we can conclude that this all-encompassing, it's a hard word, encompassing. encompassing, yeah, there we go, encompassing judgment by fire would take place the moment that Christ returns. This is what all millennials believe. They, their argument is that they will, uh, there will not be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Instead, Christ will return. He'll judge the earth. He'll create a new heavens, a new earth, which will be the final and eternal state. Some people uh, believe that. Some people I respect greatly believe that. However, as, as I stated at the beginning, Peter's not interested in giving us a detailed con uh, chronology of the end times. As is the case in many biblical prophecies, Peter telescopes events of the future, leaving out these large time gaps. He's trying to move us to the need to be right with God before this awful, inescapable day comes to the whole world. When you put together prophecies such as Isaiah chapter 65 and Revelation chapter 20, it seems to me that Christ returns and he will then reign on, on uh, the throne of David for 1,000 years. And during that time, there will be an unprecedented peace all over the earth. But at the end of that time, Satan will then lead a final rebellion and God will destroy his enemies with fire, according to Revelation chapter 20. I believe that this judgment that Peter is describing here is, is what's going on in Revelation 20 at the end of those thousand years. I could be wrong. That's why it's prophecy. Because we don't know. I do not believe that we should get caught up in trying to figure out the sequence of end times events. Because we might miss the point. 
which is Christ's return, is unequivocally and absolutely certain. It will be sudden and unexpected and have disastrous consequences for all those who have never repented of their sin. Therefore, it's vital that we are right with God before this day comes because there will be no escape when it does come. Finally, notice this. Christ's return will bring destruction to all proud works. Christ's return will bring destruction to all proud works. Peter not only tells us that the earth will be burned up or exposed, but also all of its works. Everything that proud man has accomplished will go through this burning heat that is so intense that all of the elements will melt. Peter repeats the judgment by fire in verses 7, 10, and 12. Why does he repeat himself? Peter knows the Old Testament records. Those who, who do not heed the warning are prone to procrastinate or get distracted with other things and put off getting right with God. <clears throat> in these verses, Peter is not writing about the same thing that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul writes that our works will be tried by fire. Paul speaks of this wood and hay and stubble being burned up and the gold and silver and precious stones will survive. Paul in 1 Corinthians is writing about the works of believers, uh, not of believers themselves. This is why he adds in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Peter is talking about both sinners being destroyed and their works being destroyed. Everything that we have worked for will burn. Everything. And they will face eternal destruction and judgment in the lake of fire. Now it's important to understand that the Bible does not say that everything an unbeliever works for is a complete waste. It doesn't say that. Because we can think of all kinds of technological and medical advances that have been good for humanity. God gives us great gifts like music and arts and literature for our enjoyment and pleasure. However, if just like at the Tower of Babel, those things are used and done to bring glory to ourselves, then at the end of the day, it will burn up and be a pile of ash. What he's saying is if you use your money, your talents, your gifts, your things, your possessions, all that stuff, if you use that so people look at you and say, oh, I'll tell you what, that Pastor Josh Wanda, ooh boy, he can preach a sermon. If that's my motivation, God says it's going to be burned. Burned up. And as the old saying goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Don't waste your life. There's all kinds of Christians living a life and they're wasting their life. They're living for the wrong things. They're seeking their own glory that they would get a pat on the back. That somebody would look at them and praise them. That somebody would do something to, to magnify them, to glorify them. That someone would see how much money they have. That someone would do all kinds of reasons to fill themselves with pride. Speaking of not wasting your life, I would encourage you greatly to read John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. It will help you make sure that you're spending your life in such a way that your works will not be burned up. So Peter's first point is straightforward. Even though Christ has not yet returned to judge the world, 
In that day, there will be these disastrous consequences. His coming is a certainty. It will be sudden. There is no escape. And there will be destruction on all the proud works for everyone who has not repented. Secondly, notice this. We must be holy looking for that day. We must be holy looking for that day. As we look at verses 11 and 12, Peter lays out what sort of people we need to be. That's what he says. What sort of people ought you to be? In light of this revelation that I just told you, that Christ is coming, everything's going to be burned up, what kind of people should we be? If we, if we know that, that the world's going to burn, how should that affect the way that you and I live? Two things I want to focus on that I believe Peter makes clear when it comes to how we should live. First, since Christ will return in judgment, we must be holy. Since Christ will return in judgment, we must be holy. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Notice that Peter's not asking a question as much as he's making a statement. Peter is talking about our lifestyle, the way that we live. And he often did this uh, in his first letter. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where he urges, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. The day of visitation is the same as the day of the Lord or the day of God. It is the day of judgment when we will give an account to God. When Peter says that we are to live in holiness and godliness, he's saying that we are to live lives that are markedly distinct from the rest of the world. That the life that we live has to be different than the rest of the world. That does not mean that we have to be all weird. Okay? Some people don't need any help being weird. They're just weird. It doesn't matter whether they are Christian or not. However, if people think we are weird, it should be because of our obedience to the word of God. Like they, they see that we're being obedient to God's word like that person is weird. We are, we are to hold to the values that we read in the Bible. That we are, we are to live with eternity in mind. Not for all the junk of this world. That will one day burn up. Now there's nothing wrong. I've said this over and over again. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. That's okay. But if you're living for that, that's a problem. Being a follower of Christ means that we value other people above all things. And that our treasure is Christ above everything else. Now Peter says that we not only live lives of holiness, but of godliness as well. And that word godliness has at its root the idea of being in awe of God or showing reverence to God. This is what William Barclay says in his commentary about it. He says, The attitude which gives God the place he ought to occupy in life and in thought and in devotion. Peter uses this exact same word back in chapter 1, verse 3, where he stated that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He also includes it in his list of qualities um, uh, that he has given to us in, in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. In our text this morning, both holiness and godliness are plurals. Which may mean that there are to be repeated acts of holiness and godliness. 
Or it could also mean that every part of our conduct towards God and man is to be holy and godly. In other words, we are to live our lives every single day in the presence of God with reverence towards God. Every moment of every day, we are to live in the presence of God. God, I know you're here. God, I, 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 your spirit is with me. I need to live my life in the presence of God. That might change how we speak sometimes, right? And how we talk and how we speak to one another, how we treat one another. We should always have at the forefront of our mind that day when we will stand before the Lord. And we are supposed to do everything that we do in this life in light of that day. Not in light of, of what's going to happen five minutes from now. Not in light of, oh, I wonder what's for lunch or you know, are the Chiefs going to win today? That's what's on my mind sometimes. But, uh, you know, not, that's not how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live in light of that day. The final one, when we'll stand before God in judgment. The second thing I want us to notice real quick is this. We must be looking for and hastening that day. We must be looking for and hastening that day. Three times in three verses, Peter uses this exact same verb. He says, waiting for. The meaning is to look forward to the occurrence of something with anxiousness. It's to have this eager expectation, which is what we should have for Christ's coming when, we will, uh, when he will fulfill all of his promises. You know, it's, like, it's like if you open presents on Christmas morning. It's like when your kids, they have this, oh boy, I can't wait for Christmas Day. And, you know, and they get up at 5 in the morning or whatever. And, like, it's time to open presents. We're to love the day of his appearing, according to 2 Timothy 4.8. It's like the bride who eagerly awaits the day of her groom to return from the war so that uh, he can always be with her. Look at Peter's words because he says that we are not only to wait for or look for the return of Christ, but we are to hasten the coming of the day of God. What does that mean? Well, it's possible that he's simply reinforcing what he said earlier um, with the earlier wording of waiting for it and saying that we need to anxiously wait, not just wait. However, in light of verses 8 and 9, noticing that the Lord's coming seems to be delayed while he waits for all to come to repentance, Peter may be saying that we live godly lives and proclaim the gospel to the lost and that we somehow have a part in speeding up the Lord's return. Now, when we look at the words of Jesus, we know that Jesus said the gospel will be preached to all nations. And then what happens? And then he will come. Matthew 24, 14. So the end will not come until the gospel is preached to all nations. Peter preached that if people would repent, not only would their sins be forgiven, but that the Lord would send Jesus back from heaven. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Listen, we cannot change the eternal decree of God. I want to make that clear. However, in some way, shape, or form, I truly believe that in a way I can't even completely understand, that when we live our lives in view of Christ coming again, it speeds up from our perspective. In fact, Jesus told us 
that we are to pray for his kingdom to come. Which presumably that prayer would somehow affect when God's kingdom actually does come. And it speeds it up from our perspective. As we live our lives in holiness and godliness, taking the gospel to all nations, it hastens Christ's coming. So if you want the Lord to come back, Christians are always like, oh, I wish Jesus would come back. I wish Jesus would come back. But they're not even sharing the gospel. That you don't really wish Jesus would come back. Because you're not even doing nothing to, to make him come back. Right? I mean, you want Jesus to come back? Start sharing the gospel. Last thing I want to share with you this morning. Well, last point anyway. Before the conclusion. Last point. There will be a new heaven and a new earth in which the righteous will dwell. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, that this present creation that we're living in has been subjected to the fall on the account of sin. But God has promised to restore it when Christ returns. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, that the new heaven and new earth will be a place where people will live longer lives and the lion will lie down with the lamb. So we know that it can't be a reference to the eternal state because because people do not die in the eternal state. In my opinion, it's referencing the millennial reign of Christ on earth. However, John, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 11, uses this same phrasing to refer to the eternal state after this present earth has passed away. So I, I have to be really honest. It's hard for me to bring, bring the two together. Other than to say that, that the millennial reign of Christ is like a foretaste of the eternal state when God will have fulfilled all of his promises. That's the best I got. I can assure you that heaven will not just be some boring place where we sit around in a white robe strumming on our harp for all eternity. That's not heaven. I despise how heaven is portrayed because it, it doesn't want to make anyone go there. If you, if you watch heaven portrayed in, in movies or books or anything, nobody's like, oh yeah, I want to go there. I can't wait. Heaven will be living in a perfectly recreated physical world that is untainted by sin. The new earth will be a place where righteousness dwells. It will then be impossible for sin to come in and mess anything up. We will be in God's glorious presence for all eternity. Some people are like, well, what's going to be there? I don't know. Will there be coffee? I hope so. But perfect coffee. Wrap your mind around that, you know? It's, it's, we don't know. But we do know this. Everything that we do in heaven will bring God glory. Everything that you do. Every conversation. It's not just like sitting around, you know, at the throne of God, you're just singing praise for eternity, and that's all you do. I don't know why people picture heaven that way. We don't have that as described as that's all you do in heaven anywhere. I close with this. 
A mother went to the youth pastor and said to him, I can't get my daughter to clean her room. Is there anything that you can do to help me? He responded, well, I think so. So he announced to the youth that he would come over unannounced and video each teenager's room and show it to everyone in the youth ministry. Suddenly, everyone's room became clean in that student ministry. Dear Christian, listen to the words of Peter. And what do you say? Christ will come back. It will be sudden and unexpected. Ensure that the life that you are living is one of holiness and godliness in light of his return. Are you expectantly waiting his return? Are you putting all your hopes and all your dreams in the things of this world which will one day all burn? It'll all be gone. Guess what? One day there will be no stock market. You won't get to check and see how your money's doing. I checked that this morning. I checked my, I checked my stocks because I was like, I haven't looked at my, my investment but things for like months. That's, that's really how important it is to me, I guess. And so I'm, I looked at it and I thought, one day this, this isn't even gonna matter. It's all gonna burn. And perhaps you're here and you've never trusted in Christ or you're listening online and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Today is the day of salvation, scripture tells us. You can put your trust in him today. You can do that by praying something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son and that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live the rest of my life. It's not a magic prayer. It's your trust in Christ that saves you. And a prayer is a simple expression of your trust in him. And if you said that prayer, said something like it, or you want to know more about it, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward at the end of the service. You can send us a text message. You can text the word faith to 309-328-3488. You can just send a regular text message to that, and, and I can follow up with you. You can do that from your pew. You can do that from your home. You can do it from, from wherever. And, and we can, I can follow up with you have a conversation with you. What about you, Christian? What are you living for? Is that day always in your mind? A day when you will one day stand before God. Because he's coming back. One way or the other. You will either die and meet him then or you'll get to be one of the few that are alive when he returns. Are you ready? Are you living in light of that day? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you especially for this, this word here in, in 2 Peter. God, how Peter speaks of the coming judgment and then turns around and tells us, well, this is, this is how, how you should live. 
This day is coming. You have to be holy and godly. And Lord, I think sometimes we just get confused on what holiness is. We think that's a, a bunch of rules and regulations and, and what we can't do all the time. We think godliness is the same, that we are, are somehow you know, super, super spiritual, super Christian or whatever it might be. But Lord, if we would just live our lives in light of the day when we'll stand before God and understanding that we know he's coming. Lord, help us to be Christians that truly live holy and godly. That we want to live in the presence of God every single day, every moment of our day. And the conversations that we have and the way that we treat one another, the way that we enjoy the things that you've blessed us with, Lord, that we would understand that we are in your presence and that we are to live that way. And Lord, to understand that, that if we really want to see you come again, we should be sharing the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that if you've spoken to someone today, whether in this building or online, that we would respond to that. Whether it's through text message or whether it's, it's coming forward or we're sending a text asking for prayer, whatever it might be, God. I pray that you would you'd speak to those that are hearing this message. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you'd be willing to come this morning.